Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Mark Cardiff, and I am the president of the CIA. Today, Jean-Claude Menard, former chief actuary of Canada, joins me to discuss his career, social justice, and the future of retirement, his own, and trends in the broader Canadian population. Jean-Claude, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, uh, Mark. Jean-Claude, just a few weeks ago, you were on stage at Act 19, the CIA's annual conference, where you received a President's Award given by the CIA president to someone who has made a unique contribution to the CIA. It was obviously well-deserved. Your work on the Canada Pension Plan is impressive. Its recent extension will touch a generations of Canadians, those that are retired now, those that will be retiring in the immediate to midterm, and those in the workforce with long-term retirement goals. You definitely made a difference in the lives of Canadians and will continue on. It was an honor for the Institute and particularly for John Dart to present you with the President's Award. Could you describe some of the major work you did on the CPP? Yes, first, let me thank you for the President's Award. I accept the award with pride on behalf of all actuaries working at the Office of the Chief Actuary of the Government of Canada. Over all those years, I was uh, supported by a strong team of dedicated actuaries, young and experienced men and women. Now, there are so many things I can say about my passion for the Canada Pension Plan. And it started back in 1976, uh, 10 years after the inception of the uh, Canada Pension Plan. At that time, I was a student at Laval University and experienced actuary Jacques Roy, a former superintendent of insurance in Quebec, was invited to speak to the students. Uh, Sadly, he passed away at a very young age. Uh, We all live longer, but not everyone. But at that occasion, I remember he said that the QPP and the CPP were good basic retirement plans, but they were chronically underfunded, raising issues of intergenerational equity. At that time, I did not know that I will become a fellow of the Canadian Institute of Actuaries, but that I knew that it will be a good place to work to try to solve this huge problem for the benefit of the current and future generations of contributors and retirees. So at the very beginning of my career, I was motivated by the public interest. I had a strong desire to change the world. It is not very different than the current generation of young actuaries. When you're young, you want to change the world. You want the world to be a better place to live. So I work at the Quebec Pension Plan from 1980 to 19. 19- and I was assisting the Minister of Finance of Quebec, the late Bernard Landry, and I was assisting him when major amendments were done to both the Quebec Pension Plan and the Canada Pension Plan, and it was in 1997. There was an agreement uh, on Valentine's Day in February 1997. It was a remarkable uh, result following extensive consultations across Canadian cities in 1996. So the meeting held in Fredericton in June 1997 was the occasion to sign the agreement for the Canada Pension Plan. At that occasion, I met the Minister of Finance, Paul Martin. I was very impressed by his remarkable leadership and his capacity to get people on board on these important amendments. And it reminds me an anecdote related to the name of this podcast, Seeing Beyond Risk. So the day before the meeting, the Quebec delegation, six people, including the minister and myself, flied from Quebec City to Fredericton in a small airplane. I remember there was a big storm. 
a long time before we talk about uh, climate changes, but the storm was big and uh, we were in the sky in a small plane. I was not afraid for my own security, but I was more afraid that we could miss this important meeting. As you know, any change to the CPP, the Canada Pension Plan, needs to be agreed by two-thirds of the provinces, including two-thirds of the population. Quebec is part of it. We finally landed safely in Fredericton. The meeting went very well. Eight provinces ratified the agreement, representing more than two-thirds of the population. And then in 1999, I moved to OSFI, or to the Office of the Chief Actuary. And one of the first files related to the Canada Pension Plan was the actuarial adjustment factors. As you know, the early retirement benefits were introduced under the QPP in 1984 and under the CPP in 1987. Since then, it is now possible to ask your benefit at a younger age than 65, but with a reduced pension. As early as 2002, we explained to provincial officials that the actual adjustment factors were not neutral. In other words, there was an incentive to retire early. The actual study was published in 2003, and the information was made public. At that time, the provinces knew about the subsidy, but they also uh, knew that the Canada Pension Plan was sustainable at a contribution rate of 99 so they took note without correcting the subsidy. Then came the perfect storm, the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And suddenly the stars were aligned to make a change. I remember a meeting in Toronto back in October 2008, a few weeks after the fall of Lehman Brothers. What happened at that meeting is a good example on how to transform a crisis into an opportunity. The provinces were nervous that the next actual report on the CPP could show a contribution rate higher than the 9.9% agreed in 1997. To a certain extent, they were right to be nervous. After all, the investment losses were significant. And they were also aware of the existence of the self-adjustment mechanisms, because at that time, most officials in 2008 were the same as those who supported the introduction of self-adjustment mechanisms in 1997. They did not want a contribution rate higher than 9.9% or to be forced to freeze benefits and payment. Instead, they decided to change the actual adjustment factor both before and after age 65 to make them more neutral. It was done gradually over a period of five years from 2012 to 2016. And today, we see that most Canadians are asking their CPP benefit at a later age. Let's now go to 2016. On June 20th, 2016, an historical agreement took place. Ministers of Finance of all provinces agreed to finance the CPP. And this announcement was based on three principles, modest, gradual, and fully funded. And it was easy to agree on the second and third principle. Gradual, it means that it will be implemented over a seven-year period from 2019 to 2025. Fully funded, the simplest way to express what uh, means fully funded, you will receive your full benefit after 40 years of contributions. Very different than what happened in 1976, where you got your full pension after only 10 years of uh, contribution. But it was more difficult to agree on modest. What modest means. And many stakeholders had a different view on what modest means. However, they all agreed that the private sector, either through collective or individual arrangements, should continue to play a significant role in the Canadian retirement income system. The work on the CPP announcement started in 2009-2010, just after the financial crisis. The late Minister of Finance, James Flaherty, 
sent a letter to his counterpart stating the principles of the enhancement that I referred earlier, modest, gradual, and fully funded. And our office was involved with provincial officials uh, since about 2010. The enhancement, as I said, will be fully in place uh, by 2025, some 15 years after the initial work. So my point here is that changes to the Canada Pension Plan, the Quebec Pension Plan, do not happen overnight. Actuaries and policymakers need to be uh, persistent. The history will remember the Minister Bill Morneau as the father behind the announcement. Indeed, the June 2016 agreement would have never materialized without his remarkable leadership. However, I would like to add that Minister Flaherty was also in favor. And I cannot end this subject without saying a word about the Quebec Pension Plan, about my colleagues from Retraite Quebec. Since day one, it was important that we come together with the same solution. The same announcement for the QPP was then adopted by the National Assembly in February 2018. And I would like to use this opportunity today to thank all my actual colleagues in the province of Quebec who work hard behind the scene to put in place the same improvement across the country. As a Canadian, I was very proud when I read the press release of November 2017. Stronger retirement security, now a reality from coast to coast to coast. It was a remarkable achievement of national unity. Wow. Merci, Jean-Claude. Thanks. This is great. You've covered a lot of the amendments. Unfortunately, that storm that was brewing when you were heading to Fredericton did not jeopardize the CPP and eventually ARRQ amendments. And we did not lose the opportunity to have such a dedicated actuary to lead the CPP. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> That's great. Uh, you spoke a lot about the CPP. I'll give you another opportunity. Do you consider your work on the CPP as your major legacy to the profession? Mark, I'm inclined to respond yes, uh, but I didn't work only on CPP. But the work I've done on uh, the Canada Pension Plan and Quebec Pension Plan extend over four decades, which is quite long. Not that long for a pension plan, but long enough for a working individual like me. But I consider my real legacy to be all the interaction I had with provincial and federal officials during meetings across Canada over the last two decades, to sit down with them and to take the time to carefully explain the issues, being the entire generational equity, the financial sustainability or the adequacy of benefits and the role of each pillar of the Canadian retirement income system. Nothing would have been possible without the commitment of hundreds of provincial and federal public servants since the ascension of the Canada Pension Plan. And by the way, I encourage all actuaries to read a book written by a former journalist of the Globe and Mail, Bruce Little. The book is available in English and it's called Fixing the Future and you will see not only the actual work done but all the political discussions that happened between 1996 to uh, 1998 when it was finally agreed. I devoted all my professional life to the QPP-CPP as I said but I have a vivid memory of the friendship I had with provincial officials from coast to coast over the last four decades. I was blessed to serve so many good and bright people who served the public interest with dedication and commitment. Now, many experts and political advisors came to me over the last two decades, complaining that the CPP does not react quickly enough to societal changes and also to political changes. When we speak about retirement security, I admire the Canadian retirement income system and especially 
the Canada Quebec pension plan because it takes two thirds of the provinces representing two thirds of the population, including Quebec, by the way, to change the CPP. It is more difficult to change the Canada Pension Plan Act than the Canadian Constitution. The CPP-QPP is a poster child of stability. Our citizens want stability and clarity, and the QCPP-QPP provides such uh, stability. Before ending this interesting question, uh, an interesting file landed on my desk in 2007. At that time, some federal officials were exploring innovative ways to spend annual surpluses. And the idea was to amend the CPP legislation to permit the federal government to send money into the CPP. In practical terms, this means sending money to CPPIB, the investment board, and the objective was to reduce the CPP contribution rate with this new injection of cash. But for that to happen, you need the agreement, as I said, of two-thirds of the provinces representing two-thirds of the population. And the idea was rejected. Once you open the door in good times by sending 5 billion, 10 billion, even 20 billion, this means that the reverse is also possible. In challenging times, money could flow in the other direction with a different magnitude. And I like to see the Canada Pension Plan is a lock box. What it means, it means that there are two sources of income, contributions and investment income, contributions paid by all workers and all their employers. And there are two sorts of expenditures, benefits paid and administrative expenses. From a governance perspective, what goes in must go out. My legacy is the credibility I built for the office of the chief actuary. I earned the trust of all the clients I served over the last two decades. This is a precious gift that I will cherish forever. And the real legacy is the commitment of hundreds of public servants who believe strongly in the creation of the CPP, its financial consternation in 1996, and its expansion through the agreement in 2016. Well, Mr. Jean-Claude, this is great. Obviously, as a recent retiree, I'm looking forward to my payments out of the CPP. I'm an example of one that has postponed cashing out the CPP payments. You took the right decision. And, uh... <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I will speak a, a, a bit later about this. Yeah. So, and, and I'm also quite impressed when you describe your work uh, in getting everybody to work together and create this enhancement in this ongoing operation of the CPP and QPP and being closely related together. And as you said, we've seen how difficult it is to change the constitution. And if the CPP and LFQ are even tougher to change, yeah. that is definitely quite an achievement. Yeah. I was just wondering if you had a particular initiative during your career that you felt the most proud of. This is an interesting question, Mark. And let me rephrase uh, your question just to give uh, the right perspective about uh, my role and the role of the uh, office of the chief actuary. And I would rephrase your question the following way. Could you discuss an initiative from the government where my team and I made a significant contribution? And here I want to stress that initiatives always come from ministers, from the government, and from the parliament. It could be on the Canadian retirement income system. It could be on family policies. It could be on incentives to remain in the workforce. It could be on employment benefits. It could be on any project that involves short-term and long-term projections. And I will use here two uh, initiatives from the government. The former Prime Minister, uh, Stephen Harper, made an important announcement at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, in January 2012. 
A direct result of his speech in Davos was the increase of the eligibility age of the old age security program from age 65 to 67. Of course, our office was involved since the, the day after the speech, so to speak, uh, in providing the actual valuations to the government and ultimately to the parliament. But it is what happened next that made me very proud. Those in favor of the increase and those against the increase, and I won't name any federal parties, so those in favor and those against the eligibility age used the same page of the actual report on the old age security program. You do not see that very often. Those arguing that an increase was necessary used I would say uh, specific bullets like uh, 1, 3, and 5, and those against the increase use different findings uh, like bullets 2, 4, and 6. My conclusion was that our report was well balanced. Even if the actual work involves a lot of projections and assumptions, it is important that as actuaries we remain unbiased and factual. This is the best way to gain trust from the clients we serve and ultimately all Canadians. Another initiative from the government was the increase of the normal retirement age from 60 to 65 for the Federal Public Service Pension Plan. In my opinion, it is an important change considering that people are not only living longer, but living healthier lives. Half of the population aged 20 today will live over 90 years old, quite an increase compared to 50 years ago. As a result, public servants will pay lower contributions, as well as the government as the employer. The retirement age for those hired after January 2013 is now 65, and it was 60 for at least half a century before, if not more. And this is a structural change that will have a major impact for the following decades. Well, that's good. As you said, and I totally support this comment that you generalized by saying that any actual work should remain unbiased. It is a requirement, at least a very good practice that all actuaries involved in any field of work should always have at the top of their mind. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. Now, what were, let's say, uh, two of the major challenges that you came across in your role as Chief Actuary of Canada? Uh, this is a very good question, a question that I like. Challenges mean opportunities. And the first challenge was to provide all actual reports within the statutory deadline. And over the last 20 years, I sent more than 100 actual reports uh, to various ministers. I never missed a statutory deadline over my almost 20 years as the chief actuary. Sometimes it was an enormous challenge. I'm very grateful to the team of dedicated actuaries working at the office of the chief actuary. You cannot imagine all the miracles my team was able to accomplish, especially in specific times where you have to deliver the triennial report, let's say on the Canada Pension Plan, and special actual reports required following legislative changes to the CPP, the Old Age Security, the Public Service Pension Plan, the Members of Parliament Pension Plan, or the Veterans uh, Act. You can not stop a minister to do legislative changes for the benefit of Canadians because the chief actuary has too much work. You organize yourself and you hire the people to do the job properly. The second challenge was to always think ahead of requests that could be made by federal departments and provincial officials for the Canada Pension Plan. This is why I was so pleased with the recent initiative from the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Soon after he was elected, he issued individual mandate letters to each member of his cabinet. And these mandate letters are not new. 
it gives, let's say, the roadmap for each minister. And it existed in previous governments. But what was new this time is that these mandate letters were released publicly for the first time in the recent history of the Kenyan parliament. So you can imagine that I was very interested by their content. It facilitated my work tremendously because I knew up front the priorities of the government. I mean, the real ones. One challenge during my career was to sort out the real priorities coming from the minister versus the priorities of various assistant deputy ministers. It is not always trivial to respond to each client request that I'm told is a priority uh, coming from the minister. And I have to ask myself, really, is it really coming from the minister? So I remember a night where I was working at the office with two employees working from home. I was called by two different departments during the night. And around 11 p.m., I said to the second client, uh, we will finish the first priority before midnight and we will take care of the second yours tomorrow morning. My point here is that it's to, let's say, sort out the ultimate priority amongst the priorities. One director, very efficient and very responding with clients, came to my office as a last resort. And the client wanted, believe me or not, 144 scenarios. But she phrased her request in a way that it was not clear it was 144 scenarios. And I sent an incendiary email, sometimes it is needed, to explain in details her own request. And she finally agreed that she was asking 144 scenarios. Then I said it will take two weeks to process and you cannot call us for the next two weeks. Obviously, the person was not happy because she was calling us every day, if not every hour. But in a way, I was saying to her to reduce the number of scenarios. I forced her to go back to the minister's staff at the end, she came with three scenarios that were required within the next 24 hours. You know, Mark, in our work, credibility is paramount. You cannot provide 140 correct scenarios and four incorrect. You fail if you're not at 100%. An error is always possible, but you need to reduce the risk of human errors to zero. And speaking of errors, it was a third challenge for me. The error is human. It could happen more than once. Doing an error, although not desirable, is acceptable. Hiding an error is not. It is important to also implement these values for the whole office. Since 1999, when I arrived at OSFI, I told my directors to act the same way. And the minute you detect something wrong, please come to see me. And I'm very grateful to them today because they always respected my mantra. Now, did it happen at the office of the chief actuary? Uh, of course, I would like to say never. Well, it happened, but rarely. Each time, I call the client, explain the error, and move forward. On one occasion, the client implored me not to change initial costing, then threatened me about the risk of losing the credibility of the old office. I replied, I have much more to lose if I hide the error. It was not even a possibility for me. In terms of accountability, I decided a long time ago that it was my own responsibility to go to the client myself and to explain the error, even if the error was not mine. Well, again, Jean-Claude, these are really good reminders to all practicing actuaries that will cross at one time in their career at least challenging error situation, and hiding it is definitely not the solution. Yep. 
being outspoken, explaining the situation and correcting the error is the right attitude. I totally, totally agree. And I do remember that I worked a little at the early years at the CPP and some of these requests were obviously people did not realize how much work <laughs> the scenario represents. Back then, maybe things have changed, but they had instructions yeah. that any scenario could be done and, and requests could be sent to the chief factory. But having no calibration of how big the work was, uh, they, sometimes these demands were out yeah. of, uh, completely out of context. Because sometimes, uh, usually, we are asked more than one scenario, obviously, because uh, after that, the minister and the government has to decide which scenario they want to implement. But uh, if you ask too many scenarios, there's no... We must validate each scenario without uh, knowing exactly which one will be implemented. And as I said earlier, uh, all the scenarios should be correct, not only uh, 95%. Yeah. At the Act 19, I remember clearly that you were proud of acting as an extraordinary ambassador for Canadian actuaries on the international stage. So uh, could you tell us about some of the initiatives that you were involved in and were really proud of? Uh, thank you, Mark, for your uh, kind words. Uh, there are many, and I will focus on three. Uh, the Office of the Chief Actuary was deeply involved in the drafting of the joint ESA-ILO guidelines for actuarial work on social security. And let me define what ESA and ILO mean. ESA is the International Social Security Association. More than 300 organizations representing more than 150 countries are members of the ESA. And the ESA was founded in 1927. ILO is the International Labour Office. Both organizations have their head office in Geneva, Switzerland. And these joint guidelines exist in nine different languages. English, French, Spanish and German, the four official languages of ESA. And to these four languages, we also have Russian, Arabic, Chinese, Japanese and uh, Farsi, the language spoken in Iran. Influencing the actual practice at the world stage is a formidable and rewarding challenge. 51 guidelines are regrouped in eight sections, from actual valuations to risk management to qualification for actuaries working in the social security field. And the qualifications required to work in the social security field bring me to the second initiative. There are many places in these guidelines where we refer to ESAP number two from the IAA. Again, let me define these acronyms. We have a lot of acronyms in our uh, profession. So IAA stands for the International Actuarial Association and ESAP stands for the International Standards of Actuarial Practice. And ESAP number two is the International Standard of Actuarial Practice on Financial Analysis of Social Security Programs. And the ESAP number two was adopted by the IAA Council in October 2013 in Singapore. I was not attending when it was adopted, but the Office of the Chief Factory was deeply involved in the numerous draft versions that led to the financial uh, standard. Here I would like to say that the standard would have never existed without the remarkable leadership of Rob Brown. As you know, Rob Brown is a former, first is a former teacher uh, of actual science at the Waterloo University, but he's also the former president of the CIA, the former president of the SOA, Society of Actuaries, and the former president of the IAA. So a team of dedicated actuaries from US, UK, Canada, and many other countries work endless hours until the final version was approved by the IAA Council. 
It is never easy to come with a wording that will satisfy all countries in the world. But Rob Brown is definitely the man responsible for this uh, achievement. Now, these international standards are model standards that are used by each country to write their own local standard. And because of this work, there is now a new section in the CIA Standards of Practice, the Section 7000, for social security programs. They are in force since February 1, 2018. Canadian actuaries working in the social security field must follow these standards, mainly actuaries from Retraite Québec and the Office of the Chief Actuary of the Government of Canada. And the third initiative is a complex issue involving many international organizations, the International Labor Office, the International Actual Association, the International Social Security Association, the World Bank, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, Eurostat, OECD, and the International Public Sector Accounting Standards Board. The ESA published a special issue in September 2018 on the actuarial and financial reporting of social security obligations. And as you know, most countries in the world carry social security obligations like those of the Canada Pension Plan. The obligations could be as important as the explicit government debt. How to calculate these obligations is of paramount importance. If not carefully taught, accounting standards could have a detrimental impact on current and future generations of contributors and beneficiaries. And this issue was published under the leadership of Asia Pilig, the new Chief Actuary of Canada. And I encourage all Canadian actuaries to read this uh, special issue. Great. The mention of Rob Brown is very uh, good. I would like to take the opportunity to tip my hat to the great contribution that Rob has brought to the CIA and, and all his work as a teacher and as a, the leader of these three organization of actual practice. That's quite an achievement. Jean-Claude, you often have spoken about the need for social justice around the world. Uh, in, in your experience, what is the best way that Canadian actors can contribute to social justice issues at the international level? Mark, this is a very good, uh, very good question. I would say being involved with either the International Social Security Association, the International Labor Office, or to a certain extent uh, with the International Actuarial Association is a good starting point. Each actuary can contribute with its own expertise. Financial sustainability and benefit adequacy seems to be two opposite concepts uh, in the field of social security. And not necessarily one can demonstrate that they are complementary to each other. I would like to refer to the document we just issued on how to quantify social security obligations. And the idea was to explain carefully the obligations and what the actual method should be used. So we use our expertise to explain more the nature of the social contract between generations and the social contract between, let's say, the government, the state, and its workers and citizens. But looking at the social justice from, let's say, a pure actuarial perspective, I like to use indicators to measure how prevalent is social justice in a society. And a very simple indicator is the life expectancy at birth and at age 65. The life expectancy is equal to the number of years a person will live on average. The life expectancy also tells us that half of the population will live longer than the average. And this indicator applies to the whole population of a country, not only a subset. 
And this indicator is easy to find for each country in the world. Another indicator is the poverty rate, poverty rate of seniors and the general population like families with young children and also any subsets of the population. And these indicators can be found in OECD publications or on a larger scale to the World Health Organization. When I started my career back in 1979, the World Health Organization developed a concept of premature death. And mark, a premature death occurs at a young age when the death could have been avoided. In 1979, premature deaths were defined as deaths occurring before age 55 on a worldwide basis, not only on the, for developed countries, all countries. Today, so 40 years later, I'm asking you, Mark, what this age is. Do you have an idea? Hmm. I'm going to guess, um, guess 70. You're right. It is now 70. And in my opinion, it tells a lot on how public health and social justice progressed over the last four decades. Those are good indicators, and I think we know for a fact that uh, actuaries are quite involved, at least in the life expectancy at age zero and at age 65. Uh, many actuaries across the world are, are involved in these calculations. Uh, hopefully, they're also involved or will be involved in, in the other indicators that you mentioned and, and possibly develop some more. I'm just thinking of the indicator that we have recently developed for climate change. Well, that's also an indicator that was completely uh, thought of by uh, a bunch of actuaries. Great stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. As far as artificial intelligence, uh, big data, climate change, we just mentioned, or I just mentioned, are just a few of the issues that will be impacting and, and are impacting the profession. How do you think Canadian actuaries are adapting to these challenges? Mark, it is a difficult question to answer. And let me say upfront that I'm not a specialist in these fields except for uh, the big data concept. And the simplest way to describe the artificial intelligence is the gigantic capacity of computers to process tons of information at the speed of light. I think we will witness important changes in future societies, not only in Canada, that are difficult to tackle today. Self-driving car is a good example, but there's much more than that. Smaller, faster, better, smarter seem to be the way of the future. Big data is all about the accessibility of a vast amount of data and the possibility to process this information faster because of the enormous power of computers. One word of caution here. As a former federal public servant, I was always very conscious and responsible with the data the Office of the Chief Actuary received from different sources. The OCA receives vast amount of data and information on Canadians. It is necessary to receive that information to do our statutory work. But I want to reassure Canadians it cannot be used for any other purpose than to meet our statutory obligation carefully defined by Parliament. In our electronic age, privacy has become a public concern of paramount importance. In my own opinion, the privacy of Canadians should be protected even sometimes against their own will. Climate changes are a serious issue. I like to see more actuaries involved in that domain. 
it seems to me that this uh, subject should become one of the most important projects for the Canadian Institute of Actuaries in the years to come. It should be on the program of each uh, annual CIA conference going forward. And to end with our work uh, at the Office of the Chief Actuary, each year the CPPIB, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, produces a report on sustainable investing so that CPP contributors and beneficiaries as well as other Canadian and international stakeholders can see how environmental, social, and governance factors are incorporated in the way they invest. The issue of climate changes is definitely growing in importance in their report. Well, good points, uh, Jean-Claude. I know that we have climate change definitely on our radar for a few years now. As we all know, there is a public position paper that's being developed right now and will be released in the next few months. I've seen also from other international uh, and national associations, I've seen quite a bit of activity there. Many committees, many task force working on all climate change related issues. So uh, I think not only our Canadian actuaries, but uh, worldwide actuaries are quite aware that this is a huge challenge that we can definitely contribute to try to find solutions. Yeah, and I would say uh, these uh, changes are uh, coming much faster than expected. I remember reading articles uh, as long, uh, I think, 15 years ago, and they were all saying 2050, 2060, 2070. Well, what we are uh, seeing today tells me that not only the future generation uh, of Canadians or, let's say, human-born, but also uh, the current generation of workers and retirees will be impacted by climate changes. They are coming faster, much faster than expected. As we mentioned earlier, uh, the concept of retirement is obviously changing and more and more Canadians are delaying their retirement. Uh, I'm kind of an example. or not fully retiring. Uh, what are your retirement plans now? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, before talking about my retirement plan, uh, you're right to say that more and more Canadians are delaying their retirement or not fully retiring. They are asking their CPP benefit at a later age. The shift is uh, significant, by the way. Uh, there was a time where more than 40% of Canadians were asking their benefit at age 60, the earliest possible age. Nowadays, it's uh, below uh, 30%. So I'm not saying that more Canadians are asking their benefit after age 65, although it could be the next trend. What I'm saying is that more and more Canadians are working until age 70 and even at a later age. My retirement plans are numerous. I'm retired, but I'm healthy. And professionally speaking, I want to uh, continue to be involved with uh, longevity studies uh, all, all around the world. Canadians are living longer, and I want to continue uh, to analyze uh, past trends and to study future trends. Second, I am interested in target benefit plans and especially the self-adjustment mechanisms of the expanded Canada Pension Plan. I do not expect surprises in the next decade, but after 2030, it will be interesting to follow the evolution of the significant assets managed by the CPPIB. I will remain active in that uh, regard. It is possible that I work abroad for the International Labour Office uh, to help other countries to develop social security programs that are sustainable over the long term. We have two grandchildren. I won't mind to do more babysitting. Uh, is there any better way of living for a retiree than to see his grandchildren uh, growing? And of course, traveling remains an important part of our retirement plans for uh, José and I.
Well, great. Hopefully our public position paper release recently will uh, keep on influencing Canadians across our country to reconsider and maybe postpone a bit their decision to receive their payments from the CPP and AIFQ. So we'll see how that influences. As far as you're concerned, I would say as a CIA, I'm obviously biased. I would like to keep as much as I can of Jean-Claude's great work within our own organization in servicing our Canadians, but we'd be prepared to see you as a continuing strong ambassador to show the skills of Canadian actuaries to different parts of the world. I know you, you have done and you would be doing a great, great job there. Thank you, uh, Mark. We've already covered and you've already gave us some very good messages on uh, words of wisdom or at least uh, good practices for, uh, for practicing actuaries, but give you another chance to maybe share some more words of wisdom. Yeah, well, this question about uh, words of wisdom is uh, tricky, but very interesting. And one of my last uh, tasks before I left the office was to meet uh, the board of directors of the CPPIB. As you know, they manage more now, uh, close to $400 billion. And they asked me the same question. Do you have any words of wisdom for the board? And I would respond the same thing, continue the good work. And I would add, it's all about credibility. It's all about trust. OCA, the Office of the Chief Actuary, is located within OSFI, a highly credible organization, both domestically and internationally. And by having OCA within OSFI, the regulator and supervisor of financial institutions in Canada, it helps to strengthen the credibility of the Office of the Chief Actuary. Our office is perceived as a highly credible and impartial organization by external clients, and it is important to maintain impartiality in all our dealings with ministers and the departments that uh, we serve. And to the practicing actuaries, I would say, follow the same path. I would repeat the same thing I said to actuaries from all continents. Uh, always follow the national professional standards of practice in all your professional uh, dealings. Mark, thank you again for the uh, the time, the opportunity given to me to speak to uh, my uh, actual colleagues at the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. Well, merci Jean-Claude. You have uh, been a source of great leadership and you have passed the baton to uh, Sia now and I'm sure that she will do a very good job on her own. And uh, we wish you the very best in your future endeavors. Merci Jean-Claude. Merci Marc. You've been listening to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Mark Tardif, President of the CIA. Thanks for listening.